Stu, here we are in the Crystal Gondola again. Desmo, lovely day, lovely day. Good to see you, buddy. Nice to see you. I, I understand, you know, when last time we had an episode, we said we'd be doing something inside of January, and of course, here we are, middle of February. Well, we're busy dudes. We man. are busy. I mean, yeah. I you mean, bet. How, what have you been up to lately? Well, you know what? I'm, uh, I've been having a good time, the usual, you know, traveling, skiing a bit. Um, I gotta say, though, I'm a little, I'm a little, um, Put out because uh, one of my drones was taken down by a Sidewinder missile just just over Lake Huron. So I'm a little oh, yeah. upset about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, there seems to be a bit of a balloon problem here in North America. There is a balloon yeah. issue. I, I mean, who knew, right? I think um, you know, I'm I'm concerned in a way, but I'm also thrilled because it looks like NORAD and and the you know Canadian and U.S. governments have it well looked after. You know, we, we're scrambling the F-22s and F-18s and. And taking the balloons down at at a, at a pretty alarming rate, so mm. you know I'm 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 somewhat comforted by that. You? Yeah. Well, I am. I, in fact, it's you know I hadn't heard the the uh, the nomenclature NORAD in many years. I didn't so even know it was still in, in existence. Exactly. Wondering if uh, the these folks were just asleep with no no traffic, no. Uh, well, they're awake enemies. now, brother. They're awake now, and and like I said, it's are they ever? It's, it's comforting to know that um, you know, an, an aim you know, X9 Sidewinder missile at $479,000 took out a $300 drone. So that was, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm reassured that we've got things well under control. Yeah. And I think there was a report that they actually missed with the first one, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still circumnavigating the globe as we speak. <laughs> yeah, watch out. Look, o- uh, look overhead. Yeah, and how about you, man? What's been shaking? Oh, you know, it's been uh, in 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 the workplace, my workplace. It's been busy. I mean, uh, busy's better. There, there's there's lots of activity. So, uh, spending a lot of time with the business, of course, and uh, you know, it's it's the it's the middle of winter in in my world. Um, that's when you know the the big uh, big part of the the calendar is is the winter when things can move around out there in the frozen north. Well, look, man, as they said on Game of Thrones, winter is coming. So let's hope it sticks around for you, for your business. Yeah. I, on the other hand, am looking forward to spring. Yes. But, but for you, buddy, I'll put up with another week or two of, uh, of winter. That reminds me of the, uh, the groundhogs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, 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 I went searching for one, and he, the poor, poor bugger died a couple hours before he was supposed to show up. Oh no! It, it, then what? Did he really? Yeah. Which one? Like Shubinaki or or, it was or the, t- the Quebec one? Or no, the Quebec one. Um, uh geez, what was his name? I don't even know. <laughs> anyway, the quote. Trois Rivière Teddy. I don't. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's something similar to that. Shakutami. Shakutami Chad. Shakutami Charles Etienne. Anyway, the poor, uh, poor fella, they were digging him out of his hole, and uh, he had passed away a couple hours before, uh, before showtime. Yeah, well, I guess he's not seeing spring. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, so anyway, they're, they're predictless in Quebec. <laughs> predictless. Well, I've heard that about, uh, about some of them. Um, look, man, I, I, I am reading the news of the day, and I know you and I like to sort of touch on this. And um, I don't know if you saw the report in the Globe and Mail this morning about, and I know you and I don't read the Globe and Mail very frequently, but... Um, that uh, it was it was confirming, uh, you know, CSIS reports that Chinese interference in the 2021 federal election. And I, and I love this. China employed a sophisticated strategy to disrupt Canada's democracy in the 2021 federal election campaign as Chinese diplomats and their proxies backed the re-election of Justin Trudeau's liberals. In case we didn't know that. Right. Well, you know, and, and that's a that's a. A piece in the news that uh, you know really has is 
been a, a pretty lightly uh, populated landscape for this story. I mean, I don't know if you remember a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I, me- I mentioned this because there was an ex uh employee that actually was in, in some kind of a testimony and, and, and testified this. Uh, and yeah. in fact, um, identified, I believe, 11, or is, is, is it 11? 11 individuals that had been uh, compromised. Uh, by the Chinese uh, government. Yeah, it's it's you know I would I would certainly encourage any of the listeners to go have a look at this. It's it's um, I don't know if it's alarming. I mean, it's certainly concerning. Again, but you know, again, just another quote, Des, drawn from a series of CSIS intelligence gathering operations. The documents illustrate how how an orchestrated machine was operating in Canada with two primary aims. One, to, to ensure the minority liberal government was returned in 2021, and two, that certain conservative candidates identified by the Chinese were defeated. And it, the article goes on to say that there were two that were for certain um, affected by this that they identified, but it was likely, to your point, closer to you know eight or ten specific writings that you know there was a very high degree of, of activity and, and of course, ultimately interference. So, you know, they're, they're, they're not just busy throwing balloons up there. No, they're active. And um, what's interesting is uh, the media handling of this story, which is, you know, again, dishonesty by omission, which uh, seems to be a theme here in, uh, in North America. Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so other than working hard over the winter, what, what else is shaking? Well, um, haven't been skiing like you, but I'll be going next weekend. All right, I'll well, be down near stomping grounds there at Big White. All right, man. Well, hey, we'll um, you gonna we'll be connect. there next weekend? I hope so. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They got lots of good snow, so um, that'll be good, buddy. I'll yeah, see, I'll see you up at Biggie. You better believe it. Um, so we have a, a great guest today. Um, I know we talked uh, previously was setting up our our podcast and what we'd be talking about. And I think we're super fortunate again to have a, uh, a guest that can bring uh, a lot of really contemporary information as it relates to um, sort of the legal world. We've got a legal eagle joining us today, and we're going to talk about some, some very interesting topics, and we're kind of going to pick it up where we left off on, on cybersecurity and, and sort of the view from uh, her end as it relates to corporate governance and, and corporate responsibility in that regard. So mm. um, we're going to talk about some other cool topics too, but, um, but I'm pretty, uh, pretty excited about it. I am too. No, this is, uh, like you said, contemporary, very, very timely with uh, many things that are going on, I, especially with our, our corporate responsibilities, which seems like the, uh, the bar is being raised every day, every week, every year. Uh, so why don't we introduce our, our guest? All right, man, let's get at it. Um, so our guest today is, uh, Ratika Gandhi and, um, I'll tell you a little bit about her and then we'll, uh, we'll get her on. So Ratika is currently the head of legal and compliance for Alcon Canada, an evolving medical device company. In addition to overseeing all legal and compliance issues for this organization within a complex industry, she is also an active member of the leadership team, assisting with both strategic uh, as well as corporate uh, risk analysis. Her approach has always been to be collaborative but proactive as a legal advisor, providing risk management advice and embedding principles of sound corporate governance. Ratika has repeatedly trained other leaders on fiduciary duties, employment law considerations, best practices from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, and of course, compliance issues. Ratika began her legal career uh, at a 
big Canadian law firm based in Toronto as an associate practicing corporate commercial law and also developed an expertise in health and regulatory law. Ritika is also an active member within the Canadian legal community. Ritika, welcome to the Pragmatics. Welcome to the show. Happy Friday. Thank you. Thanks for having me, both Stu and Des. Happy Friday. Yes. And we, we're in front of a long weekend, too. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, Family Day weekend here in this country and the President's Day long weekend in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome, Ratika. It's uh, great to see you. Thanks for joining the Pragmatics. And like I said, we're, we're sort of going to, I guess, kick it off with you where we left off. And, and Des, do you want to take it away on the sort of starting off the questions? Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, Ratika, you know, we, we, we did have uh, the last episode, we, we were able to have uh, a gent on here that uh, walked us through, um, you know, fairly broad issues on, on cybersecurity and, and privacy and, and so forth. And I think this is a, a good natural um, uh, path to where, what we're going to talk about today. And I think you can, uh, you can zoom us in on, on some of this stuff. But on the corporate side, you know, what is the responsibility to the corporation to protect their customers and employee information? Great question. Thanks, Des. And, and just in true lawyer style, I just want to highlight that the views that I express today are my personal views and opinions and not that of my employer. And obviously, uh, we're going to get into some meaty topics, but it's not formal legal advice. So, you know, if you need to get into some of this, hire a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> but let's let's get into that, the question that you raised. So it becomes more and more topical every day, as we can probably imagine. Um, and you've, you've invited a guest previously on cybersecurity, from what we see in the news on what corporations who've been subjected to breaches, what they have to undergo. And so at the minimum, the privacy legislation that governs organizations in Canada sets up a framework for what organizations really need to, to think about. And in Canada, that is the PIPEDA legislation. That really governs the principles of how corporations must handle. And by handling, that means how they collect, how they use, or how they disclose personal information that they have in their possession for the purposes of continuing their commercial activities. And at a very, very high level, it governs kind of 10 main fair information principles that really premise, are premised on you know, obtaining consent when you collect anyone's personal information, or allowing individuals to access their information. Um, also, they have the individuals to whom the information relates have a right to challenge the accuracy. So you have to make sure you're collecting appropriate information. And then identifying the purposes for which you're collecting the information. So organizations often tend to, in the world of data, collect information and sometimes over-collect information. And if you're using it for a different purpose for which it's collected or used, you need to go and get consent once again. And of course, the legislation defines the appropriate safeguards that organizations need to put into place to make sure that the information remains safe. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of high level it is changing right now with with changes in the legislation introduced by bill c27 which is uh kind of strengthens the teeth of, of what the organizations are going to have to do and in particular there's a change in a requirement if this bill is passed and it's actually currently at the second reading of the house and Co- of commons requiring businesses to implement a privacy management program. So that's far more onerous that was previously in the legislation um, and really requires organizations to do due diligence and have a robust process 
policies, training in place for their organizations to make sure that they understand what their obligations are as it relates to the collection of information that could be quantified, that could be qualified as personal information. And then there's a private right of action that's new, which basically allows individuals to bring an action for financial loss that they may they may have suffered. So a lot of a lot of activity in the privacy realm, clearly. Mm-hmm. So for for the listeners, um, what I'd like to do is is sort of get a an understanding of who that is. I mean, we're we're doing things on the internet mm-hmm. uh, as consumers. Um, you know, there's 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 institutions like CRA. There's uh, you know yeah. the, the Equifaxes of the world. Um, there's also just uh, you know buying products uh, on the internet. So, can you can you give a bit of a broad stroke on on this this legislation and, and who it, who it really uh, is uh, obligated to? For sure, and 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 the Canadian landscape is really a myriad of different types of legislation. So depending on what type of business you are, so you know, not governmental entities, hospitals, schools, they're subject to provincial legislations that have kind of different rules, but similar principles. This one is related to any business that is in the private sector that has commercial activity. So it really applies to any business, small or large, the obligations are the same. Right. So, so quite broad. Yeah. So, absolutely. you know, super interesting. And Ratika, I think, you, you know, you and I have touched on this a little bit before the call, but, you know, how burdensome is this for organizations uh, and corporations to, you know, it makes perfect sense. I get it. There's, there's obviously a responsibility to protect the information that you're gathering and use it for responsible, uh, you know, initiatives or exercises. I get all that. But, but the cost to protect this information against, you know, thinking back to our previous podcast, you know, hackers, mm-hmm. which can now actually be governments as opposed to just, you know, private entities yeah. or organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, how burdensome is this for an organization such as the one you work for to protect mm-hmm. this information, either that from a human resource standpoint or a financial standpoint? And is it uh, sort of a two-part question here, Ratika? And is it fair to burden organizations yeah. in this way when, you know, we're not really catching the the hackers or the perpetrators. Yeah, I think, uh, so to answer the first part, is it burdensome? Absolutely. Uh, it really also depends, you know, organizations that are, that are international that have functions, privacy functions within them. It's far more, um, I guess, uh, they're, they're far more able to, to get ahead of this. Um, I guess the, the biggest consideration for organizations to think about to lower the burden on them is, do they really need to collect personal information? So for mm. the purposes of your business operations, if you don't need business information, if you're just collecting contact information of your customers and you're simply using it to deliver your product to them, that's fine. And actually that wouldn't require the same, that doesn't really qualify under the, the privacy um, regime to the extent of the, the amount of safeguards that need to be in place. However, if you need to collect information, then make sure it's really limited. And so I think that's the first element to help reduce the burden um, for organizations. The burden still exists, though, if there is a breach. And unfortunately, even if a hacker comes in, it's not you know, an organization's fault by any means. There is an obligation for all organizations under PIPEDA, and that's going to continue under the new bill, C-27, if it passes, that um, an organization must report a breach to the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. 
And that would be any breach of security safeguard that involves, again, involving personal information that poses a real risk of significant harm to individuals. So if you can show, I don't really have personal information. So there was a breach of our, you know, some of our corporate information, but it's not going to cause a significant risk of harm to individuals. You could reduce your burden of reporting there. Um, if it does qualify, you also have to notify the effective individuals of the breaches and then keep documentation. And I think that is the biggest part of the burden, maintaining documentation of your whole program, how you maintain breach reporting, what do you collect, why do you collect it, and who actually has to have access to the information and for what purposes. So that's the biggest burden, to be honest. Is it fair? I think there's a lot of things in life that aren't fair. Uh, I do think organizations have an obligation if they are collecting and monetizing on information, and we are in that age that, that that's the case and information is, is a really big commodity, um, that they should be protecting it. And as customers, we should know, and consumers, if an organization is collecting it and they're targeting me or they're sending out behavioral advertising based on the information that they're collecting, that they should keep it safe. And my health information and my banking information should not be collected unless it needs to be. And if it could be hacked, then that's a big problem. So I, I do think that the onus should be on corporations, especially because they're doing that for their own business gain. And what about, uh, I mean, I, and I, I appreciate your, your perspective and you're right. It, it probably comes down to at least in some, in some part, you know, are, are you collecting the information that you need or are you over collecting? And, you know, yeah. what, so, um, what about this whole notion of, of consent? You know, most of us download apps and there's 30 yeah. pages of, of information that we're asked to read before we click accept. Um, you need it all, right? Oh yeah, yeah all. of course. You, yeah. you know me, I, you know, <laughs> word for word. Um, but, 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 but honestly, I, I, I think the, the vast majority of consumers wouldn't read, you know, one one hundredth of what's on those, mm -hmm. you know, consent forms. Um, any thoughts about that? Any advice? Great question. I think uh, obviously the consents and the forms that we all see is a mechanism for organizations to to kind of to make sure that they are following their requirements. They put all this jargon out there so that if they're sued, they can say, well, it was in the terms and conditions and a, a reasonable consumer should have informed themselves and agreed to the terms and conditions. So unfortunately, I do think that sometimes that's an unfortunate burden, especially because a lot of times these terms and conditions and these consents are overly complicated. So, I mean, what I suggest for organizations is really if you're if you're putting that forward and you need to obtain consent, try to do it in a manner that's concise and fair and, and think about, you know, when you're having to sign up to your terms and conditions for your cell phone or whatever else you click on, with, which you're probably not sifting through all the fine print realistically. All right. Well, of course, many of these things, as you know, you, you, you get there and you you can't go any for, further until you accept it. Exactly. And, yeah. And like you said, how do you uh, how do you go through thirty pages of of jargon? You know, and so people are just clicking past it, not knowing the contents. Totally, and, what they're agreeing the to or not agreeing what to. What they're agreeing to. Right, and the contents could be completely egregious to the customer. Yeah, super interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Ritika, talk a little bit about, if, if you don't mind, sorry, talk a little bit about sort of 
corporate governance and, and other social responsibilities. You, you said you're involved in, you know, diversity and inclusion. And, and we know the workplace is changing daily. I mean, obviously, I, I ran, uh, I had the privilege of running a number of organizations. Des is still uh, obviously very mm-hmm. operationally running his corporations. Um, and we know that things are changing, certainly for leadership and management. I, I wouldn't suggest for a moment it's getting easier um, yeah. what do you, what do you see on your side from, from sort of governance and, and, uh, corporate responsibility or social responsibility? I think, um, similar to kind of how, how Des started off to the, the bar has definitely been raised, I think for organizations, their leadership teams and, and their boards, they're really having to now be more accountable, um, and take a look at their social societal contributions and footprints, whether that be from an environmental standpoint or from a DNI standpoint. Um, and I think it's not just good enough to have good products or good services anymore. Stakeholders, customers, consumers are all very interested in figuring out how a business is bringing products to the market. How are they offering services uh, and, and whether they're doing that in a socially responsible manner. Um, in my industry, I'm seeing you know, customers and institutions asking questions in, in RFPs, asking them in business proposals, really forcing organizations to have to think about these things. Uh, and I think there's a, a lot of momentum just from kind of what's out there um, as it relates to, to DNI and, and ESG um, obligations. I do think also that leaders are having to think about DNI as, a, as an example because some of the work that I've been doing that it's not only the right thing to do but it actually makes business sense if we're actually trying to represent the customers and the markets in which we serve especially in a, in a country like Canada we need to embrace and have representation of diversity and inclusion so that we are actually um, representative of the, of the markets and the customers that we deal with and, and it matters to them. From the seat you sit in how do you see that DNI, that diversity and inclusion journey that we're on? Yeah. How, how do we fit meritocracy into that? Yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, I don't think I don't, I'm not suggesting that it's a it's an easy conversation, and I think a lot of organizations struggle with with how how to start. I mean, first of all, do we do we even understand? Are we all on an even playing field with respect to understanding what diversity and what inclusion actually is? And then what are everybody's experiences? I think the hardest part about it right now is figuring out what type of mandate you want to have for your organization. So is it something that's a bit more, you know, check the box? Um, it's not that anyone would tar- want to have this, but you know, just check the box superficial events-based DNI, you know, we, we celebrate and we have these events, or do you really want to, if you're thinking about a corporate social responsibility, embed that within your recruitment policies, within your benefits, uh, within things that actually matter to the people that you employ and then the customers that you serve. So I think that that's part of the journey. And, and the advice that you know, I'm hearing more and more is, don't try to do it all alone. So often the mandate tends to fall on you know, HR, or even the GCs are legal to, to lead it through and, and they don't have that as a full-time job, obviously. So engaging experts, there are so many DNI experts, particularly in Canada, um, that really know their stuff that go in and provide training to the large you know, banking institutions as well as smaller uh, organizations to identify where to start them on that journey and, and depending on how sophisticated they are and how far along the, the journey that they are already. 
So one question still on the, because uh, um, I know you're, you're, you're ready to pull the trigger here, Stu. So, um, so in, 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 again, your experience uh, with, you know, the world of, of DNI, where do you see, and my question about meritocracy, where do you see that variable in the weighting of, of, of bringing in uh, new employees and what have you? Does meritocracy, is it somewhere in the top three? Is it somewhere in the, you know, bottom three of one out of 10? Where, where do you see that uh, in today's employment world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it, at the top. I think that um, it, it really depends on, um, again, the understanding of the organization and the willingness to do it. It's not a requirement, right? It's more of whether this is actually something that the organization thinks is important um, and that it actually is going to help for its retention of talent and progression of the organization's kind of business mandate going forward. Got it. Do you think the DNI as it exists today is just a euphemism for what was affirmative action back in the day, Ratika? I mean, obviously, before you know, before your time, but, you know, yeah. affirmative action was also, you know, people described it as positive discrimination, right? Is, is, is DNI just sort of a, like I said, a euphemism for what existed and was ultimately, you know, done away with, you know, a decade ago? I, I think that it, the DNI, the focus on DNI has, has changed the understanding. I don't think that we've had to grapple and approach it in the way that we've ever had to do before with all of Black Lives Matter, all the um, kind of injustices politically that have happened around the world, that now DNI is more than that. It is, is there diversity of representation of, you know, demographics in your workforce? Like take a look at it, gender, um, race, age, disability. And then is the environment, the inclusivity piece, I think, has changed. That is the piece of really understanding, does your environment support the diversity so that people are actually feeling comfortable to engage um, and maybe not equally, but in an equitable manner. I think that has changed from kind of the the euphemisms from before. And, and it's always been, I think, important. I just don't think organizations have had to encounter it in the same manner that they've had to now. Because if they don't, there are lots of organizations that are, and then you're going to be falling behind. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point. And I, to your point about embedding it into your organization and what you do, it's it's not like affirmative action was back in the day. It's not, you know, it, it's not law. It's not, you know, dictated no. upon the organization to a degree. Um, curiously, though, a strategic question for you, seeing yeah. as, you, you know, you, you work on leadership teams and, and, and help uh, drive or, or define strategy. <laughs> do, do you think Canada, we're not going to get into an OECD OCD, OECD, OECD, OECD conversation today, Des, but, um, or at least I don't think so, but you know, are we in ways disadvantaging ourselves as a, as a country with, with policies such as this, where we know that other countries, um, and other organizations in other parts of the, the world don't, don't embed or have DNI and I'm not suggesting for a moment I'm not a fan because I think, you know, yeah. diversity in workplace and leadership teams makes a very positive difference. So I'll I'll say that right mm -hmm. off the bat, but not at the expense of the right candidate in the right role. No, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think that is the um, biggest for those individuals or leaders or organizations that are perhaps not as bought into the business case for, for DNI. 
Um, we're not saying having a healthy DNI mandate means sacrificing the right candidate for the right job. You, you still will hire based on merit. What we're saying is, and part of the discussion that organizations to start have, having is, when you are engaging in the recruitment process, are you encountering, are, are you approaching it in a manner that is more comprehensive? Are you using a panel? Or are you relying on one individual who might hire one individual who looks and feels like them? If you have a panel, you might have a diverse slate of, in, of um, candidates, all of whom have you know, equal, maybe in some cases, qualifications. And then in that case, making sure that you're making the decision based on merit and perhaps considering how DNI would play into that and offering, you know, an opportunity for someone who may have previously been, you know, overlooked. Oh, good point. Mm -hmm. In our business, uh, you know, no one person is, is making a decision on a, on a, uh, on an employee, but you know, I mean, we have many branches, and you know, there, there, there might be two, three people involved, and I think that's important. Uh, you know, we're not a, we're not a massive business, uh, uh, and we're we're dealing with uh, people coming in, you know, in onesies and twosies and so forth, and and uh, no, I think it's very important to um, to, to broaden that uh, that to a, like you said, a panel. Uh, yeah. Very important, uh, Ratika. One of the things that Des and I always chat about you know, particularly over the last several years with the pandemic is just the, the changing environment within the workplace and expectations about, um, you know, working from home or remotely as opposed to going into the office. And, and we know there's been a very, very, very slow progression back to what mm -hmm. was pre pre pandemic. Um, you know, Des works in a sector where, you know, they, they probably didn't have any time off, right. They, they probably worked more on the energy sector, you know, ensuring that the lights were on and, and, and the energy and juice was flowing. Uh, I know our friends and, and family in the healthcare world, um, they didn't get any time off. They, they if mm -hmm. anything, worked more and, and were incredibly stressed through the pandemic. Yet in the corporate world, uh, and I can cite numerous examples of friends that are either in or running organizations where employees just frankly don't want to come back full-time or five mm -hmm. days a week. And there's been this slow move, like I said uh, a few seconds ago, you know, it's gone from, you know, one day back in the office to two days back in the office, some are three, but very few corporate entities have, have mandated uh, that their employees come back five days a week. And, and yeah. I think some have even gone on record as to saying they won't do that um, mm -hmm. in the foreseeable future. You know, how is it at your um, current employer, and maybe just your thoughts on this whole notion of employee um, rights in a post-pandemic world. Yeah, I think it's a, a very um, difficult question that that organizations of all shapes and forms and sizes and industries have to deal with right now. I mean, without a doubt, COVID changed the status quo. So you know, kind of like the CSR conversations, cor corporations, I do believe, have to break down their archaic thinking of the way that they used to operate to at least examine the model that makes best sense for them. So COVID forced many of us, like, you know, my organization to work from home. And we had to grapple with so many different considerations about when can we allow employees back? What kind of employment um, law considerations were, were were relevant. Can we eventually force them back? If so, under what circumstances? Um, and I still think employers have to be mindful of the fact that they can't go back to the same starting point anymore. Things have changed. Competitively, other organizations, like you said, some are entirely remote. 
And so leadership teams and organizations are having to consider if you're asking employees back, do you really need them back? Are they being productive in their current? Can they actually do their job remotely? Um, of course, there's the argument that in a lot of organizations take this position that they do believe in in-person collaboration and that you know, facilitates further development and learning. And I think that's absolutely you know, part of the conversation. And employers at the end of the day are still entitled to, to ask their employees to come back. I mean, it hasn't changed so much. When you were hired, you were, you were you know, pre-pandemic. In most cases, you were expected to be in the office five days a week. So employers can still do that. The implications of doing that is what they have to consider. What are their competitors doing in the industry and whether they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage um, if they do take a very stringent approach. What I've seen um, across the board is a hybrid model, which most have started you know, one to two to three days back. That has been, like you said, very, very challenging, even that. Um, but I do think as time progresses and you know, COVID kind of becomes a more dis- you know, a, a bad memory, hopefully. Um, I do think organizations will start becoming a little bit more firm and they actually are able to do so. There's nothing prohibiting them from doing so. Um, and if employees aren't happy, unfortunately, they may have to look at other alternatives because there are options of other organizations allowing for a far more flexibility. Um, there's just there's a big variance at this point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's also the other, other side of this. And I, I was speaking to a... Uh... Uh, a leader of a business who uh, was dealing with, you know, the, some of the workers putting some pushback uh, to coming back to the office entirely, you know, and, and these are, mm-hmm. you know, if we look at the types of business that are across the, uh, the, the economic landscape, obviously there's, there's some jobs that can be done completely remotely and, yeah. and some that just aren't. But this was uh, a situation where turning the tables on that, where, you know, he, yeah. he was dealing with an employee who was, was putting a, a tremendous amount of pushback on, on coming back to the office and, and staying remote. And he threw it out there that, uh, okay, well, if you, you know, basically you're now going to compete with a completely remote atmosphere, employment atmosphere. And he, he was going to look uh, to other parts of the world to fill positions. Uh, in fact, he filled a couple, a couple of positions in, uh, from Czechoslovakia. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, be, kind of be careful what you wish for. Exactly. You know, yeah. because you're putting yourself in, in competition now to extremely remote. Yeah, for sure. And I think there, there are also very valid reasons, like you said, about certain roles you know, requiring you need to come in based on kind of what the function is. If you're in a QA role, if you're a doctor, obviously, like you actually need to see people and operate on them or environments or, you know, in, in distribution centers. So obviously the argument is a lot easier there. The other question that I think is going to become more and more relevant is as employees push back and the concept of accommodation, like, can you accommodate for me? And I think that's where employers need to inform themselves on what an accommodation actually is. And that's always been a requirement. Employers are obligated to accommodate their employees to the point of undue hardship. And that's more than kind of just a mere inconvenience. Inconvenient for you to not be in the office is not undue hardship. Um, But there also are specific grounds for which people can seek accommodation. And the biggest I'd say advice that I would give employers is make sure that you have the appropriate documentation. So if someone's asking, they're pushing back, they need to, they want to be accommodated, 
consider the request without making any assumptions of whether you think they should be accommodated or not, but really ask for justification, for, depending on the grounds, you know, family status, medical, religious, whatever it may be. And you have the right as an employer to ask for, okay, give me evidence of why this is, you know, needs to be accommodated, and then let me consider it. Um, I think that's going to be something that employers are going to have to deal with more than they ever had to before. Yeah, I, I think you're bang on. I, if if the pandemic taught us anything or employees anything, it's they can get very creative as it relates to their um, mm-hmm. personal needs and and request for accommodation. There's no question. They're they're much more savvy. And you know what? It's funny. I I, I believe in remote policies in the right place for the right organization. Um, but for the last two years, we the only variable that's really been talked about is productivity. And productivity yeah. hasn't gone down, therefore I should be able to work wherever I want. Yeah. But other variables such as engagement, you know, loyalty, collaboration, you know, have not been part of that conversation. So I think it's, to your point, uh, Ritika, I think it's an evolving landscape. I think practically speaking, employees have the the leverage right now because there's a war for talent and they're yeah. able to say to their employers, well, if you don't let me work from home three days a week, I, I may, you know, take my, my bat and ball and go play in a different field. And there is a high le- likelihood that they'll find a field to play in. Um, I don't think it's been challenged unless you can tell me otherwise legally quite yet. And I think Dez's point is a very good one, which is be careful what you wish for because there may not be another field to take your bat and ball to unless you want to move to Czechoslovakia in this example. Right, Des? I mean, it, it, it is a be careful what you wish for world. I mean, anyway. I think I also, very, I was, sorry? sorry. I was also going to say it's on the other side too. I mean, I think that if you're sometimes some of the more, and I would say probably the more junior um, individuals who are starting off in the workplace, they don't actually know sometimes the benefits of actually being in person. And I think back to my, my law firm days, I mean, if I didn't have, yes, you know, law firm life is is definitely hard, especially in the first couple of years of practice. But if I wasn't in the firm, learning through osmosis in a lot of cases, sitting in the partner's offices, observing calls, kind of being in the war room and data rooms, I actually maybe wouldn't have been able to develop in the manner that I have. And I think some people now are actually missing out on that. The remote world has has adjusted some of their opportunities for development and they might not know that. I think um, that's a great point. A- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I think that's a, that's a fantastic point. That's, that's often lost on, you know, the folks who are coming into the workplace and quite candidly don't know what they don't know. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, you only learn from experience and, and, and being in, you know, in the field or in, in this case in the office. So no, I think that's a great point. Um, just as it relates to sort of the changing environment in the workplace, Ritika, Des and I have also had conversations over the years um, about severing individuals. You know, we, we've both been in places, unfortunately, where we've we wound up in, you know, in court and, and, and we're fighting and, and typically what is already a very generous, you know, exit or severance environment in Canada gets even more generous if, if you don't dot the I's and, and cross your T's. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, what we can do as, as managers and leaders to protect ourselves? Yeah, I think, um, obviously, and you kind of, you touched upon this, our employment landscape in, in Canada and in Ontario is very employee friendly. Um, and so for men, for, you know, corporations and for employers, the biggest thing is to really kind of 
I always say this document. And so, you know, as you go through the development of your employees and as they become more senior and, you know, go up the executive ranks, are you providing the appropriate feedback um, as well as the, you know, from a performance management perspective, are you documenting misses? Are you documenting things that actually, um, you know, where they're not actually satisfying the job requirements? Because that would help your case when you have to go through, unfortunately, a situation of, you know, termination um, or deciding, you know, the, the future of that employee for the organization. You do obviously always have the right as an employer to, so long as you're meeting your statutory requirements to end an employment relationship with an individual. Um, but part of your due diligence is making sure that you're being transparent with that individual, because I'm sure you guys have probably experienced in, during the course of your, your um, corporate world, you know, execs that are completely surprised. I and mean, I always got raving reviews or no one's ever told me there's an issue. And so I think it's incumbent on employers, uh, managers, leaders to be as transparent as they can and to document that. Uh, and that's it both will help them, but also it's, it's fair to the employee that way too, so that they can know what to, to kind of expect and not kind of manage their own expectations. So they're not that grandiose. Uh, at the end of the the end of the relationship. Yeah, I mean that world is. Uh, you're you're right. We 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 see these. Uh, uh, if you're if you're leading an organization, you see this uh, from time to time. We've been very good on on certainly in, in my experience with with our business. You do have to document everything. You got to have a file. Um, yeah. You know, we've we've got our own internal protocols to deal with that, but you know, there's the one, two, three strike type yeah. uh, type documentation that I think uh, at 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 worst uh, you got to you got to stick with that. Yeah, uh, if you've got to sever somebody, you, you really have to have a, a, a documented uh, trajectory uh, uh, that gets you to a, a sever. Yeah, and I, I I've you know talked about it before, and and you know whether it's you know, one or two handwritten notes or, you know, a couple of sentences, just make sure it's, you know, precise mm-hmm. um, and that you're consistent in your, in your approach. I think, uh, again, in my experience, where uh, we get into trouble is when you have leaders or managers um, that could be very, you know, very strong managers in, in a lot of ways. They could have, you know, good administrative skills and operational skills, but what they lack is the courage to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Um, and I also know that um, in the past, and, and I've learned this, you know, decades ago, you, you know, they used to believe, or my leaders would tell me, you know, there needed to be agreement or sign off on some of these conversations. And the truth is, and Ratika, I'd love to hear your thoughts. There doesn't have to be agreement or sign off. It's no. my assessment as a leader exactly. of your performance. And I don't need you to agree that, you know, you drop the ball on whether it's an initiative or the whole year performance. Is that, is that no, fair, Ratika? That, that is fair. And I think it's, I mean, Yes, you can approach it as a dialogue and like, I'm providing you with feedback. Do you, do you have anything more to add? But at the end of the day, as an employer or as a manager, you're, you have the, you know, you're in the position of being able to evaluate. And if it's not up to the standards, so long as you're doing it, obviously in a, in a non, you know, in a more responsible way with, from a non-discriminatory or, you know, you don't want to have any allegations of that um, with all the good faith. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, it's the onus is on you. Um, Mm-hmm. And you have that responsibility, to be honest. I think it's also just important to, as you document, to just understand, you know, what what rights the employee may have. So that's part of just kind of general corporate um, 
you know, awareness as well as employment law considerations on how that regime operates in the province of where you're employing mm-hmm. people. So, you know, what type of common law factors, what, if this were to go badly, what would the court consider and, and what actions did you take that could have mitigated some of the risk or that actually contributed um, to the risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we had a, an instance where, you know, there was uh, the, you know, the one, two, three, in fact, this went to a fourth, you know, strike and uh there was uh you know the documented you know first entry and you know we like to have if there's a second entry that in the discussion with the employee you need to sign here that we had this conversation uh that second one you know the 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 gent uh signed uh the third one absolutely i'm not signing any more of these types things and you know the the fact that he didn't sign it uh, in the end when it went the distance the fact that the event happened the adverse yeah. event happened, uh, didn't go away, didn't didn't take any legitimacy away from it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the file had four events exactly. that were um, that were serious, and uh, when it went the distance, that documentation won the day. I think your points do on on not having the courage, or maybe we just feel uncomfortable to have those difficult conversations. I think that is part of you know we can think about executive leadership training or, or incorporating some of that because it's very easy to have fun and positive conversations it's when it comes down to those ones that people become uncomfortable then sometimes glaze over the specifics just because it's uncomfortable for them and then they actually end up risking kind of when the relationship really needs to end um, just because they were you know upfront from the beginning right right no I was gonna say you hate you hate getting there and it's a mystery to everybody Exactly. You're having this uh, this severance yeah. conversation. Yeah. Right. It shouldn't be a mystery. Yeah. It shouldn't be a mystery. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, speaking of mysteries, good segue, because uh, <laughs> I think it was just over a year ago, Ontario introduced this this um, disconnecting <laughs> from the workplace uh, legislation, which I got to be honest, when I was working with an organization at the time and when the HR department brought it to me, I thought I was being punked. I didn't actually think it was, you know, genuine legislation. Can you talk about a little bit uh, about the, the, the legislation in Ontario and, and how it's been received? It came into force in June of 2022 and requires all um, organizations that are based in Ontario with more than 25 employees to put into place a disconnecting from work policy. And so unlike what the media kind of portrayed it as being, it didn't, it doesn't mean that now all of a sudden there's a employee right to disconnect. And that's what we saw in a lot of the headlines, like right to disconnect in Ontario. It's not actually what it required. Really, it just provides um, forces, I guess, organizations to make sure that they put a policy into place that helps define what employees can expect after hours and that they're not actually required to work outside of their normal working hours uh, and to conduct all of their business within the hours that they've agreed to. This really came out of, you know, COVID and and what the the, um, Minister of Labour commented at the time is it was put into place as a response to what she said, they said was the increasingly blurred lines between home and work and ensures workers in Ontario know that family comes first. Um, what's hard about it, though, is, you know, as, as you would know, working hours are not traditional anymore. They're quite fluid, especially as we moved into the, the, you know, remote working environment. And so 
it makes it even harder for the policy to make sense for organizations. So really, we have to just kind of look at putting this policy in place, being reasonable in its applications, understanding that depending on the type of organizations, you'll have employees cross-border within the, pro even within Canada, time zone differences. And so really making sure that employees know that they don't have to work outside of their normal business hours unless there's a specific need for them to work. Um, really, practically speaking, has that changed, in my experience, the way how organizations have functioned? Probably not. Um, but it is in place and it is a requirement and it is law as of right now. So that, that was going to be my question to you. So as you think about your early days as an associate with a big law firm, or I think about friends that were in investment banking or even, you know, residents, you know, in medicine, you know, mm -hmm. the, the thought of this type of policy against their, what would be considered traditional work hours in, in those yep. three areas I just described, I mean, it's, it's lunacy, right? I mean, if, if you said to your partner in your early days, look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to check out today at, at 435. I've <laughs> got, I've got yoga yeah. and then a cooking class. What, what would they have said to you? <laughs> uh, I'm here. So, you know, cancel your yoga class. I mean, not, not in the same way, but yeah, I mean, maybe they would have said that's fine, but are you going to join in after there was always the expectation that you still will make yourself available regardless of the hours. Now, that is in certain industries. Law firms, very clear residencies, iBanking. Um, I think now after COVID, what it provided is people now are far more flexible. So they can't use that argument now. Like I might leave at you know, 3 p.m. to go pick up the child from daycare and log back in. And so when are you disconnecting then? Um, I think that's the problem. And the legislation came at a time where it's really confusing to see the practicality of it. Um, and again, mm -hmm. recognizing that there are so many urgent situations, like if there's a customer impact, does that mean an employee can say, sorry, I disconnected. So, you know, that patient didn't get what they needed to get or, you know, something happened at the distribution line and sorry, you know, I was disconnected. So I, the emergency happened. Those still, you still have an obligation to make sure that you're fulfilling your job functions, mm -hmm. particularly if you have a job function that is, you know, frontline facing. You know, and here we are talking about this, but I mean, in the end, it's just more legislation that distorts yeah. a landscape, just more, more overreach. What about the cu the customer? The customer's calling the business. Uh, there, yeah. There's demands and expectations that we all have for whatever our business line is for the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, in our business, uh, you know, stuff is going 24-7 out yeah. on sites. Uh, it is absolutely no stretch to have calls at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. And somebody's got to get out on the highway and, and head out to a site that's uh, two and a half hours out in the, in the frontier. I mean, yeah. that, that is just, I, I couldn't imagine somebody saying, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, it's, it's my kid's softball game starts at 6.30. I mean, I'd love to but I can't do it. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I think, you know, Ratika, we we've said the word practical um, yeah. 20 times today. Right. And, and it'll be interesting to see when, you know, the legal challenges come to what's, you know, practically necessary for a lot of these yeah. organizations, you know, and, and I, and that's why I brought up burden earlier, yeah. uh, you know, particularly to small 
medium-sized organizations that are already working on, you know, probably razor-thin margins. And, you know, you you know who doesn't get to apply this policy? You know, sole proprietors and small entrepreneurs and people who've, you know, built these businesses, you know, from the ground up, you know, with their line of credit, with their skin in the game and everything else. So, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting time for sure. uh, maybe with that, uh, I know we're sort of drawing to the end of our time, Ratika. Any any thoughts? Anything? Any you know, sort of pearls of wisdom or anything for our listeners as it relates to you know the the workplace and the environment that um, that they're they're currently faced with. I think just um, really trying to not be overwhelmed. I mean, I, I know it's easier said than done. There the amount of legislative changes that. Ontario has seen and Canadians have seen in the last like couple of years is tremendous. Um, I think that the best thing for organizations to do is to try to you know engage experts to the extent that you can and lawyers. And I know lawyers are not always cheap, um, but at least engaging them to help you identify what are the top risks for your organization, depending on the industry that you operate in, because you're not going to be able to do everything all the time. Um, and so it really becomes a risk identification, smart risk-taking approach, uh, and as well approaching it with reasonability. And I think these policies, the fact that they don't actually, the legislation doesn't have extensive prescriptive regulations are for a reason. They've left it up to businesses to decide what makes sense, I think, to perhaps make it a bit easier. So I think as long as you're you're conscious about it and making an effort um, to put to follow the law, you'll probably be you know, most protected. And from a working um, that's that applies also to the, the working environment, I think, as well, from an employment standpoint. Very good. Any questions, Daz? Any any final thoughts or comments for Ratika? Well, I, ju- I just think, you know, capping off, you know, what we talked about, uh, obviously, um, you know, we've experienced much of this. Uh, obviously, there's there's an, the DNI landscape that we're in today is is one that we're I think we're all tackling in in real time we're a publicly traded company and I I, do, I wanted to bring this up earlier is that uh, there was a, uh, a securities commission effort yeah. to to uh, almost mandate getting women uh, well not just diversity women a few, a few, yeah. yeah women uh, having women participants on the board and and that yeah. dates back I think goes back you know four five six years ago the introduction right. of that and not only that in our annual information form that we're yeah. uh, that we're um, doing annually uh-huh. is uh, if you don't have any women represented on your board what are you doing to attract yeah. uh, that participation so y- if you didn't they wanted you to comment you know so this is th- these are pretty strong mandates sure right and and look where we are today on on you know they're almost demanding that participation and now it's it's mm-hmm. now further than that it's it's uh, the diversity is now not just uh you know females on on the board of uh, right. uh publicly traded companies so uh can you can you sort of give us a quick idea of this whole move into this yeah, I think that that was just the starting point. I mean, mandating women women on board was a recognition that you can't exclude a significant part of the population, 50% of the population. And now it's just, it's gone further, like you said, to identify that there's far more diversity. And it is specific on market. Like, you know, the considerations that we deal with in Canada as it relates to the involvement of the Indigenous population is different than some of the 
the the issues that they have to navigate in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. They're similar but different in a lot of ways. So I just think that it it is uh, a requirement. It's part of now the mandate of all organizations. Um, and you're right, public public companies have to you know comment on this when they talk about their corporate social responsibility. That's part of it. You know, what are you doing? from your footprint, and that means environmentally, from your people, from your engagement, um, for making sure that you're not, you know, operating in a manner that's exclusionary in any way. Got it. Well, it was uh, great having you on, Ratika. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to join Des and I. Um, there were a number of topics we, we wanted to get to and we didn't. We were going to talk a little bit more about, you know, Bill C-11 um, as it relates to broadcasting and, you know, you, you had mentioned Ratika Bill uh, 96, Quebec language sure. law. So with that, it's it's kind of our way of saying we'd love to have you back someday. Would you sure. uh, would you join us? Absolutely. All it's, right. been, it's been fun. Awesome. And well, thanks I, so much. I'd love to to tackle this uh, C11 because, you know, it affects the, the pragmatic stew. We, <laughs> you know, can you imagine a, a day where we might have no, have to get out uh, a CanCon license to do what we're doing here today. No, I, I can't imagine and that. That's what it means. So I'd I'd love to tackle C11. It's it's something that I don't think enough people are talking about. But yeah, okay. love to have you back on Ratika and talk about a few of these items. Sounds great. Thanks, Ratika. Enjoy your uh, family day weekend. Thank you. All right. Well, that was uh, that was a terrific guest, Stu, and um, I'm I'm really hopeful we can get uh, Ratika back on touch on a, a few of these other uh, pertinent uh, items that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought she was um, very informative. Always incredibly well prepared, um, as we I guess we expect from from our legal eagles and uh, and friends. But um, no, it was a it was a great chat. Yeah. On uh, some of the things that are a little more pertinent here uh, in the news. I see that uh, there has been a uh, a conclusion with this commission on the uh, the Emergencies Act. I see it just came today. I see that. I see that. Um, no surprise to you or I. I don't think that Justice Rouleau said that um, invoking the Emergency Act was was completely appropriate. Unbelievable. As you said, though, not very much of a, a surprise with this conclusion. Did you get any surprises from it, though, Des? I know the news is fresh, and and you and I haven't had a chance to pour over, you know, his, his 56 recommendations about the act itself, but, you know, in the headline itself, any, any surprises from uh, Justice Rouleau? Well, I think, you know, looking at the commentary in, in the one article, I just uh, breezed through it. It seems there was lots of blame in his commentary across a, uh, a, a huge landscape of police forces and, uh, uh, provincial governments and so forth. What's amazing is that uh, with this broad-based incompetence that he highlights, does that bring down the bar uh, to, to, to leap over and, and be able to uh, invoke this act? I, I, I'm, I'm still trying to grasp this. Yeah, no, I think it's a great great question. I know it's rhetorical, but it, it, does, it does beg the question. If, if you're surrounded by incompetence, does it just give your federal government you know, gr- greater reach and, and opportunity to invoke things like the Emergency Act. And I know we're being somewhat facetious, but I think the majority of our listeners and, and just folks in general wouldn't know how, uh, just how draconian that act is. And when it's invoked, um, you know, to those that fall under it, all of their rights are, are 
entirely, the vast majority of their rights, let's be honest, are entirely restricted, right? Mm -hmm. they, they have access to their communications. They can seize their assets and cut off their bank accounts. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the one thing about the, without maybe getting too far today into the act itself and its its impact on on us as, as citizens, you know, the, the, the one thing that, that surprised me to, to a degree was the fact that there was very little conversation about why this all happened, at least in the first one or two articles I read. You know, the restrictive nature, uh, two years of, of lockdowns, um, and, and just the impact generally of COVID and the government's response to, to Canadian citizens. It really wasn't in the two articles I read. You're right. They, they touch on none of that, this um, uh, unwarranted restrictions that over a course of a couple of years, I mean, you would think that there's enough history of even re recent history of, of uh, dating back to the, to the last couple of world wars where uh, you see how if you treat a population a certain way, there will be a response. And of course, I, I still I can't get over uh, reading this article here quickly that um, they were in a hurry to invoke this act to be able to really inflict, especially the financial damage that they did to uh, in, in mm -hmm. complete you know resentment, uh, you know the emotion behind this for, from the Trudeau government to be able to go destroy some people financially. Um, which you know what you what you just alluded to mm -hmm. is is so enormously frustrating uh, for a light word. No, but I, look, I I think it's it's the right word, right? I mean, as again, as as citizens and as we reflect, take inventory of of what this last two and a half three years has really been like. Because I, I guess we're we're coming on three years next month. Yes, March of 20, um, yeah, that'd be which, three, which three is, complete years. Which is actually frightening and unbelievable in a way, considering the impact that, that this pandemic, and, and more specifically, the impact that the government's, the combined government's response to this pandemic has has um, sort of left on Canadians. Um, you know, it, it, it'll give us podcast material for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. And you and I have talked about it a lot off off our podcasts and social settings and cocktail parties, just, you know, and sometimes we're in agreement and, and obviously sometimes we're not. And it's the, the beauty of uh, the world we live in. We can, we can challenge one another's opinions, but, but we have talked about the fact that the impact to Canadians, uh, mental health and otherwise um, is yet to be discussed. Mm -hmm. On that note, let's get drinking, man. Unless you want to keep talking about COVID. Well, you know, we can. We we've got uh, we've got months and years to talk about how this unfolds. So I'm sure we'll yeah. be, we'll be all over this like a Wilco suit. Um, yes, you know what we've done today, uh, Stu, is we've we've selected a real nice uh, wine. I I like this this. Uh, uh, I'm this not familiar with it, so you're gonna have to uh, you're gonna have to tell us about it. Yeah, you bet. Well, this is um, this is a nice wine from Barquier Brothers, and it's a it's a it's a BC wine. All right, and their location is in a in a wonderful neighborhood uh, of uh, of producers that are producing real nice wines. Stu, you'll know a few of these. These folks are right in the neighborhood of Burring Owl, Desert Hills, Black Hills. Oh yeah, you know, 
the Nota Bene that's a favorite of both of ours. Delish. Black Hills. Uh, Hester Creek, Geringer Brothers. It's right amongst, uh, uh, you'd almost call it uh, Golden Mile. It's got good neighbors. Yeah, great neighbors. But this is, this is one that I got turned on to uh, about a year ago, the Bartier Brothers Cab Franc. It is terrific. It is very reasonably priced. And, you know, we're starting to see a lot of Cab Francs here in BC. Yeah, they seem to be uh, proliferating, right? We're moving yeah. a bit away from the, the you know, Pinot Noirs that seem to be everywhere. Well, uh, yeah, obviously Pinot does well here. But this is, uh, you know, I've learned that this, this, this vine here does very well in, uh, in BC. Um, unlike the Cabernet Sauvignon, it, it tends to mature a few weeks earlier than a cab. So in a climate like, uh, like here in Canada, in the Okanagan, it, uh, it thrives in, in that. And of course, um, cab francs are used, you know, quite often to blend cabs and Merlots in sort of a Bordeaux style. But here in BC, we're starting to see, you know, a single Single grape, uh, you know, Cab Franc in, in a bottle. And, you know, Burring Owl makes a beautiful Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this one keeps up with that. Well, let's uh, let's crack it open and get going. All right. I mean, it looks lovely in the bottle, but I bet you it, uh, she's better in my belly. In my belly. Get in my belly. Oh, can you hear that? Oh, that's a good pour. So um, Bartier Brothers are, are uh, to your point, you know, geographically a little bit south of us down in the, you know, Oliver area, correct? Yeah, warm spot, warmer yeah. spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and have you visited this uh, this particular winery? No, I haven't. Well, let's uh, get out there. Oh can, yeah. you go? oh, can you reach that? I think so. Cheers, buddy. No, Cheers, man. Now, this, is, this has um, just been introduced to me in, in the last year. Uh, so kind of new to me. And I haven't been to their uh, their spot. She's got a nice nose. Yeah. Well, it's very nice. Yeah, it's, we'll, we'll um, give that a uh, couple more minutes just to open up a little bit. But uh, it's zesty. It's a little peppery. Yeah, yeah. I, it's um, and it's well under thirty dollars a, a barrel. Well, on there you go. So it's we should have opened with in, that incredible value. So that's uh, you'll see that on our. Uh, on our social media pages, uh, all right, w- that we're on, you know, we'll get a nice uh, photo of that. Hey, you know, I just wanted to kick Trudeau while he's down here, you know. But is he ever really down? Yeah, maybe well, that's a topic for another day. But I, okay, I do, I'm ready. I, I do think the mood is changing, though, Stu. I think uh, we can feel it. Let's uh. just hope. But you know, here recently, um, the you know, you, you said we we're going to get into the OECD. <laughs> right, right, right. But you know what? One, one, uh, one ranking that the OECD uh, put forty countries in in the next decade. So, two thousand twenty to two thousand thirty, the OECD ranks Canada doing the worst in GDP per capita growth going forward for a decade. And you can only attribute that to the policies of this federal government and the conditions it's setting for economic prosperity, completely hampering this country's ability to be uh, a prosperous, I mean, to be, to be 40th on a list of this 40 with the abundance of 
of everything that we have here, resource-wise, technology-wise, the human capital we have here. But where we've seen over the last several years of this federal government is we've seen an absolute vacating of foreign mm-hmm. investment into Canada. It has just been tracking lower and lower and lower. But not only that, Stu, is the the statistics that Canadians themselves are not investing in Canada. Their money is actually going to foreign investments. Yeah. And that's an incredible uh, vote of com- of non-confidence. Well, and you're absolutely right, Des. It, 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 even if you discount in, the, in that OECD ranking for resources, the, the point you made about technology and human capital in this country, you, you know, although it would never offset entirely the resource piece, because we are a resource-rich country. Um, When you look at the list of countries that we perform behind or worse than, I I think it would shock a lot of people. And um, you are 100% bang on when you say domestic, you know, or, or our own citizenship is investing outside of our country. It, it makes me wonder if they've voted with their wallet before their actual pencil in the ballot box. Like, will it ultimately translate? Have Canadians woken up and said, it's time for a change? And the latest Ipsos Reid poll is, is frankly scary and disappointing because it has the Liberals back up neck and neck statistically with the Conservatives after several polls of the Conservatives being markedly ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, even one of the polls, as you know, showing that if an election was held today, and this is months ago, of course, that the Conservatives could form a, you know, a majority government. And it seems like, again, the the script is, has flipped, which scares me. I mean, it's it just, you know, long story short. Yeah, no, just further, you know, disappointment in, in Canadian voting. Hey, you know, Stu, on a, on a better note, yeah, man. I want to flip out a uh, a little shout out to our childhood and good friend for fifty years, young Dean. He's going to be a granddad. That's uh, that's true, and I think that's very appropriate, Dean. Uh, but, Dino, congratulations, man. I yeah. mean, uh, to you and your your lovely bride and your entire family. We are we are thrilled for for you. And like I said in my note to you, I think the gray hair is. Very appropriate and timely for your uh, for your new gig. When I first read his 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 note to us, I, I could feel that he was gushing, you know, about that in in such a positive way to be a to be a granddad. So yeah, real yeah. happy for him. Yeah, great news, and um, you know, all the best in 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 the journey, buddy. You bet. And you know, we've uh, we should talk about the tune we've picked. Yeah, let's let, is let's it time? do it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think people have heard enough of us. <laughs> for, so, for today yeah so you know folks when we uh when we say we're we're gonna get uh, an episode uh, done and we do some talking about what wine we're gonna feature and and what song you know this is this is a song that we had no problem agreeing on uh Stu, you brought this one up along with another one because you know we were talking with you know this was very much illegal and and you know with our our, our lawyer guest and it was a nice pick this is um uh, from 1985, from Gowan, A Criminal Mind. Good uh, 
good Canadian guy. Oh, is he ever? And he's now performing with with one of our old time faves. We we I think uh, featured them on a previous podcast, which is uh, Sticks. Yeah. Um, but to your point, Des, I mean, this was a great tune. I remember when it came out. I remember the video on MTV because it was, you know, this sort of transition between real life and animation. It was it right. was very cool. Um, and I think, like I said, the theme, or as you said, sorry, the theme is is very appropriate for today's podcast with Ratika. As Stu mentioned, a um, little bit about Gowan. He was uh, had a, a terrific uh, uh, solo career in, in the yeah. 80s going into the 90s and r- really made a uh, made himself uh, presented to the world, had some good hits. Um, of course, Criminal Mind, but uh, You're a Strange Animal was a great uh, hit, and, and Moonlight Desires. Remember that one? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. No. Anyway, and of course, uh, what's happened is uh, he's now... Uh, almost in the place of Dennis D. Young with Sticks for the last 20 years. I read something just here here recently that uh, yeah. uh, 1999, he, he joined Sticks and, and they're still touring with Gowan. And they still do uh, a whole, you know, half set of Gowan material. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, he's why not, right? He's oh. the... Uh, he was a big part of the, to your point, the late 80s and uh, I guess mid-80s and... Um, I, I, and I do want to say, even though we're not, you know, we, we don't show this live and on video, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm still envious of Gowan's hair. Like, I mean, honest to God, he's still got one of the best heads of hair in, in rock and roll. Yeah. And do you know what? I, you know, did a little bit of just a, you know, Wikipedia on the guy just to, to catch his age. He's 10 years older than us. Well, he's he's looking good. I mean, rock and roll must keep you young, Des. You better believe it. <laughs> yes, you better believe it. Anyway, folks, thanks for uh, listening. We'll be back to you here uh, momentarily with another great guest, uh, but we'll take this out with Gowan and a Criminal Mind. I'm 
was my